Well, we're working our way through the book of Ephesians, and we've gotten to uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, the middle part of Ephesians chapter 5. Paul has, um, uh, is writing a letter to the church. It's addressed to the Ephesians in the, uh, the King James translation, but in the original text, there is no um, designation of who it's for. The original text has a blank there, uh, Paul, the servant of Christ, um, to blank. And the, uh, the understood um, meaning behind that is it was supposed to be copied and sent to a number of churches. There were seven major churches in, uh, uh, in Asia, what the Bible calls Asia, what we know of as modern-day Turkey. And it was to be passed around among all the churches, and uh, not only those but also some of the, the smaller churches as well. Colossae was a, a smaller church in, uh, in Asia. It wasn't considered one of the big, uh, the major churches, one of the big seven. But uh, at any rate, Paul is taking a, a, a big picture view, an overall look at the church and who the church should be in the world. And he's, uh, he's told us certain things. The first uh, three chapters of the book of Ephesians are about our position in Christ, but the last three chapters in the, in the book are about how to live here on the earth. If um, uh, I, I hear more people focusing on the first three chapters of Ephesians than the last three. And there's a natural tendency to do that because the first three tells us who we are in Christ and what belongs to us and what God has done for us, and it's just wonderful. But then you have to realize now you have to live on the earth. And so he's talking to us about, uh, about uh, how to operate in the things of God here on the earth. He starts off in chapter 5. Uh, chapter 5 begins by saying, instructing us to be followers of God and imitators of him. Mimics, literally mimics of God. And he tells us how in verse 2 he says, and walk in love. And then he starts talking about avoiding the fornication of the sexual sin that's in the world. He's talking about in chapter 5, in verse 16, he talks about the importance of understanding the times that we're in, redeeming the times, because the days are evil. Well, if they were even Paul's day, they're certainly evil in our days too. And then he says in verse 17, we closed with this last, uh, last Sunday morning, wherefore, because of the times that we live in, because of the world that surrounds us, wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. God has a will for each one of us as believers. God has an overall will for his church. Now, he's got an, uh, an independent individual and a specific plan for you, but he's got a plan for all of us as the body of Christ. Well, what is that? Verse 18 begins to tell us. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, the first thing he makes mention of in talking about staying away from and staying out of the, uh, the impurities of the earth is he said, now be careful about being drunk. You know as well as I do that people make bad decisions when they get drunk. Now, he doesn't say don't drink. And there's a big controversy in the body of Christ about that. Is it okay to drink? Should we, should we drink wine? Should we not drink wine? Should we have uh, alcohol and limited? And the Bible doesn't even deal with that. The Bible talks about that which goes to excess and that which impairs your decision-making process. How many of you ever, have ever known yourselves or anybody else that you cared about that was facing a real major decision in life? And they said, well, I've got this decision to make by the end of next week, so what I'm going to do is go get drunk so I can make a real good choice. <laughs> That's not the way it works, is it? People do a lot of things when they get drunk that they wouldn't do if they were sober, things that they regret. And so that's what the Bible is talking about is saying, now here's the world's way of going about things. Now remember, this is in the context of understanding what God's will for your life is and what his will for his people is. He said, 
Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. You go too far with the things of the world. In other words, know your limits. Know your limits. But he says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, when he talks about being filled with the Spirit, he talks about some characteristics thereof. And, and the last, I wish I could skip this message this morning. I'd like to go right to chapter 6. And the reason for that is because more wars have been fought among church people and in church families over the verses of Scripture that are identified in the last half of chapter 5 than probably any other thing. This is one. It starts right here because the church starts arguing, well, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Paul doesn't say one word about speaking in tongues. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, you need to realize that Paul is not talking about in this context. And remember, Paul's taking a big picture view. He's not trying to correct a problem in a specific church. It's the only letter that he doesn't. So he's not trying to fix a problem. So from a big picture standpoint, he's saying, live a Spirit-filled life. Live a Spirit-filled life. Now, who's he writing to? Well, if it includes the Ephesians... We know in Acts chapter 19 that Paul, when he first came to Ephesus, found certain disciples. And he asked them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said, well, we haven't even heard about a Holy Ghost. What do you mean? And he said, well, under whom then are you baptized? Whose baptism are you baptized under? And they said, well, we are baptized according to John's baptism. Talked about John the Baptist. And he goes on to say, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance. John's message was there's one coming after me. His name is Jesus. The Messiah is on his way. And so when they heard that, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And then Paul laid his hands on them. They spoke with tongues and prophesied. So Paul, to the, to the degree that he's writing to the Ephesians specifically, as far as our information is concerned, to that degree, he knows these people are spirit-filled. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us you can be spirit-filled and speak with other tongues, which is the Bible evidence, the New Testament evidence of being filled with the Spirit. But you can be spirit-filled. You can speak with other tongues and not live a spirit-filled life. Now, there's a play on words here where he says, be filled with the Spirit. It literally means be being filled. In other words, it denotes a continuous action. You can't drop your guard when it comes to the things of the Holy Spirit. You can't drop your guard. You've got to stay on top of it. Now, again, the context is don't overdo it with wine, but overdo it spiritually. Because the excess of wine or alcohol will lead you to do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do. It'll lead you to do stupid and crazy things that you'll regret later on. But to overdo it spiritually, and I'm using that kind of as a sarcastic term because there's no way you can overdo it spiritually. But to overdo it, to go to excess spiritually makes you a better husband or wife, makes you a better child or a better parent. It makes you a better employer. It makes you a better worker. It makes you a better person in life. The post, I'm going to get ahead of myself. I'll say this again at the end of the chapter where it talks about a great mystery. But here's part of the mystery that Paul is going to use as the marriage relationship being a type of Christ in the church. Here's part of the mystery. Being super spiritual doesn't make you weird. It makes you the best and most sensible person around. I wish some churches would get a hold of that. Now, while I'm talking about this, hold your finger here in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 5 and turn with me over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians is a parallel letter. They were written at the same time. 
when Paul was in prison. The Colossian letter was written specifically to address a problem that was in the church. It was some wrong teaching that had uh, sprung up that the people were taking hold of. And uh, to the degree that we know what it was about, it included worshiping angels and magnifying evil spirits and stuff. And the devil's always trying to draw attention to himself. So that's nothing new. But notice the parallel scripture in Colossians chapter 3. In verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Now turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Let me read verse 18 and 19 again. Be not drunk with wine, but be wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Did you notice the difference in those two verses or two passages? Colossians 3 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Here it says, be filled with the Spirit. But the same result occurs, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, why is that? Because you can't get any more full of God than you are full of the Word and full of the Holy Ghost. It's the only way there is. He's addressing a specific problem to the Colossians. So he says the specific problem is going to be fixed by your knowledge of the word. To the Ephesians and the other churches that the letter is supposed to be circulated among. He's not trying to fix a problem. So he's not saying that they've got a problem with their knowledge of the word. He knows the church at Ephesus specifically. The church at Ephesus was where Paul spent more of his ministry than any other church. It was known as the top dog when it came to preaching and teaching and so forth. The Apostle John was a part of this church. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was part of this church. Timothy was left as the pastor of the church. This was the all-star church. The Ephesian church was the all-star church of the day. So he doesn't talk to them about their knowledge of the word. He knows they know the word. Well, if he knows they know the word, why is he talking to them about being filled with the Spirit? Because, folks, there's two ditches one on each side of the road. You can be so spirit conscious without a knowledge of the words, you can get weird. And a lot of charismatic churches are weird. And on the other side, you can be so conscious and so full of the word, but ignore the spirit of God that you become dry and argumentative. Well, neither one are pleasing to God because God wants us to be based on both the word and the spirit. But notice the result. Be filled with the Spirit. Another way you could say that is stay full. Stay full of the Spirit. Now, that takes work. You can't just coast. You can't just say, well, I had a great time in church yesterday, so I'm good for another month. You got to stay full. It takes maintaining the relationship with God through the Word and by the Holy Ghost. But notice the results. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, yourself doesn't mean you personally speaking to yourself as an individual. It means speaking. Christians speaking to other Christians this way. And there's a lot of historical evidence in the the first century of the church, a lot of historical evidence of where churches would come together and they would sing sermons. I'm glad we don't do that today. Or maybe I should say you're glad we don't do that today. But they would sing, the Holy Ghost would come on people and they would sing sermons. They would sing messages from God to one another. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what's going on in the churches. So he says that's a sign of being filled with the Spirit. That's a sign of being of living a Spirit-filled life. Now, please understand, I'm not talking about the Acts 2-4 experience. 
Well, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and, the, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I'm not talking about that. These people are already full. They've already been filled with the Holy Ghost. And Paul is saying, live it in your life. Don't let the Holy Ghost just be, in a hitch, just be a hitchhiker with you through life. Live it. How do you do that? Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Notice the first thing that it says that a spirit-filled life does will affect your tongue. Well, I wish Christians get a hold of that. I never have understood Christians cursing like the world. That doesn't happen around me too much, but every now and then somebody will slip up. And they'll say something say, oh, excuse me. Don't know why I said that. Well, the reason you said that is because you say that when I'm not around. First thing the Bible says, first thing Paul used by the Holy Ghost is an example of the Holy Ghost taking control of your tongue. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Some of the words Paul uses here is, uh, one of the words that Paul uses here literally means to, um, to pluck the strings like of an instrument. But he's not talking about playing instruments because he uses the same word over in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 15 where he says, what is it then? I will pray with the understanding and I'll pray with the Spirit also. I will sing with the Spirit and I'll sing with the understanding also. He's talking about the Holy Ghost making you an instrument of praise and worship. So he says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's the first characteristic he makes mention of as being a part of a spirit-filled life. We could interject and interpose into this. Paul is saying, I know you already speak with tongues. Now let the Spirit of God that's with you and in you and has filled you manifest in your life by speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Second characteristic, he says, is verse 20. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. A spirit-filled life should be a life of thanksgiving. Now, he's talking about what the world should see. What should the world see about us? It should see that our mouths are filled with praise and that we're always thanking God in every situation. And the third characteristic. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. These three characteristics are the things that Paul identifies as the evidence of a spirit-filled life. Not the evidence that you are filled with the Holy Ghost and speak with other tongues. But the evidence that you let that infilling of the Holy Ghost and that prayer language that God gave you in other tongues affect the way you live. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. Now, folks, now he's going to start talking about husbands and wives. And, man, what a problem it's caused. Because people are going to talk about, and I've had so many people say, I just can't stand verse 22. Because verse 22 talks about wives submitting to your husbands. And my husband tries to use that as a weapon against me and so on and so forth and such. Now, think about where Paul's coming from. Paul is coming from a position, overall, big picture view of the church. He's saying, here's what God wants the church to look like to the world. What, is the, what does God want the church to look like to the world? Now, so far, he's talked about what the church should look like among themselves. Speaking to yourselves, not speaking to the world. Folks, don't try to speak psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to the unsaved. They'll think you're nuts. And they're probably pretty close to right. 
Number one, when we leave church, what do we do? Folks, when you leave church, it's time to put up or shut up, so to speak. The world doesn't care about what you think. The world doesn't care about what you do in your services. The world wants to know what difference is it going to make for me to have what you say that I should have. So what does he talk about? He talks about relationships. And the first relationship he begins with is in the home. Folks, if you can't make your Christianity work at home, forget trying to make it work for somebody else. If the life of God within you doesn't affect your home life, Who cares what it does for you out in the world? And this is where we've lost a lot of our children. Because as parents, Christian parents, spirit-filled parents, have preached one thing and said amen in church and then lived a different way at home. And the kids won't follow what you say. The kids will follow what you do. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. So what's the first relationship he makes mention of that we should allow the the spirit-filled life to affect the marriage relationship? Verse 22, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. As I said, what a problem that's caused. Now here's the reason why it's a problem. The reason it is a problem is because most people don't understand what submission is. And most people that try to use this, this verse as a, as a means of control or here's what you ought to do, wife, and, and that kind of stuff, totally misses the point of what submission is. Folks, please understand there's a difference between submission and obedience. Submission is an attitude. Obedience is an act. Now, let me give you a couple of scriptural references to prove this to you. Different words, but same concept. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 19 says this. If you be willing, that's submission, and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Notice it's not just obedient, but it's also the attitude involved too. Willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 says this. It says Jesus humbled himself. That's submission. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the death of the cross. So it's not just action. It's attitude. And I've got to tell you, folks... You can do the right thing. You can be obedient with a rebellious attitude. I would rather have somebody working for me that's rebellious in their action but submitted in their attitude rather than have somebody that's obedient in their action and rebellious as far as their attitude is concerned. Because one, I've got an action to fix. The other, I've got a problem with their attitude. And I can't fix that. Attitudes can only be fixed by the individuals. So he's talking about an attitude here. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. The word own is an interesting word because it's the word that we get our English word idiosyncrasies. It means uniqueness. It's also the word where we get the English word idiot. It would be absolutely correct translation to say, wives, submit yourselves to your idiot husbands. (laughs) I'm just telling you the truth. I hate to admit it, but that's what it says. What does it mean? It means guys are going to be different. It means everybody's going to be different. I may not agree with what some other guy does. You may not agree with what your husband does. But if it's who he is, then that's what you need to develop a submissive attitude toward. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Thank God you don't have to submit to me. (laughs) 
this is not a good service to get me working on. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Now, let me let you in on a little secret here, folks. There is no distinction between the words man and husband. No distinction between the words woman and wife. So a lot of times where the Bible talks about the man being the head of the woman, it's got to be talking about the husband-wife relationship. Here they understand that's the context, so they translate itself. Over in 1 Corinthians, for example, it talks about in customs in the church. He said, let a woman's head be covered for the, the man is the head of every woman. Well, the man's not any man. No one man is the head of every woman. He's talking about the husband is the head of the wife. When you understand that, it makes a lot of more sense and brings a lot of clarity to other scriptures. I'm not the head of your wife, men. You're not the head of my wife. I'm the head of my wife, and you're the head of yours. Because it's the order of arrangement that God sets up. Now, if you think being the head of your wife means you control her, that's not what the Bible's talking about. It's not talking about action. It's not talking about obedience. It's talking about attitude. Why should wives be submitted in their attitudes toward their husband? Because the husband is the head of the wife. Well, I don't want it to be that way. Well, tough luck. That's the way God set it up. He set it up for your benefit. Not so that you could be controlled, but so that you could be protected and provided for. Notice he uses, finishes the analogy. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. The word savior means deliverer and protector. Deliverer and protector. Now, folks, in these two scriptures, verse 22 and 23, in these two scriptures, Paul outlines the ingredients, the two ingredients for a successful and happy marriage. Provision and submission. The attitude of submission. Now, again, you know that the problems that have arisen in the church world through the hundreds of years since this letter is written, you know that those problems have come about because somebody tries to define, well, what does it mean to submit? Should I submit to my husband when he wants me to go to the bar with him and drink? Well, no, that would be obedience, not submission. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3 that the unsaved husbands are won by the godly behavior and lifestyle and attitudes of the wives. Well, it wouldn't make sense that a godly husband or a Christian husband would be satisfied by the ungodly lifestyle of the wife, does it? Of course not. It says, submit yourself unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. It doesn't mean do ungodly things. It doesn't mean do things that the Bible uh, rejects or commands you not to do. We're supposed to be, for example, we're supposed to be, and the Bible is real clear about this in Romans 13, we're supposed to be submitted to the authority of our government. But if the government tells me to quit preaching in the name of Jesus, I'm not going to obey that. Now, I still have a submissive attitude toward them, but I'm not going to obey what they told me to do. Can you see that? It's talking about attitudes. So folks realize the ingredient for a successful marriage is the attitude. The attitude. Provision and attitude of submission. Then he goes on and starts talking about the husbands. Well, let me, before I get off that, again, I, I've been, I've hit around this a couple of times, and let me say it now before I forget and before I lose the thought. So many times people want to try to define what submission is because they're looking for obedience from their wives. Well, in the first place, that's wrong. You shouldn't try to take responsibility for what somebody else does or force them to do anything one way or the other because we all have to stand before the Lord on our own. 
and for ourselves. But secondly, realize where Paul is coming from. Paul is coming from a position where the Holy Ghost is inspiring him to say the marriage relationship is the closest thing that we have on earth to identify our relationship with God. Now, what's Paul's marriage relationship with Jesus? What is his relationship? Is he trying to get out of doing what he's supposed to do? Is he trying to avoid everything that the Lord wants him to do? No, he's willing to submit to the will of the Lord, even when it brings pain and suffering into his life. He's willing to submit. He wants to submit to God. Why does he want to submit to God? Because he knows, maybe better than anybody on the face of the earth at that point in time, he knows all that Jesus has done for him and all that Jesus has given to him. And the same thing's true today. Jesus has given the same thing for you and me as he gave to Paul. But why do so many people, both Christians and non-Christians, feel like God is a million miles away? Why do so many Christians have such a minimal relationship with God? They may know they're saved. They may remember when they went to the altar and gave their heart to Jesus. Beyond that, there's no evidence in their life that God's on their side or God's doing anything for them or that they have any relationship with him whatsoever. What makes the difference? Response. There's one difference between a good, healthy, invigorating relationship with God and a cold and dead and dry relationship with God. And that's response. Because God's given the same thing to the person that feels cold and dry as he's given to the person that's invigorated and being led by the Holy Ghost day after day after day. God's done everything on his end, made all the provision. He's the savior of the body, so to speak. He's the deliverer. He's the protector. He's the one that's made all the provision. So what's the difference? Response. The attitude with which we respond. Now, I know from my own experience, and you know the same thing, that the more I respond to the things that God has already done and revealed in his word, the greater and greater and greater my relationship becomes. The closer relationship I I gain with the Lord, the closer fellowship I gain with him. And it's all based on response. So wives, I hate to tell you this, but if you're going to follow this analogy all the way through, the success of your marriage depends on you. Don't get so excited. I have more good news. And that's what the Bible is telling the wife. Now, folks, you know as well as I do, God has put a marriage handbook on the heart, within the heart of every woman. There's just stuff about marriage and relationships and emotions that, that women know about and wives know about it that men just don't get. I not only don't get it, I don't care. <laughs> don't want to know. Beth and I got married and she wanted me to read every marriage book out there. Well, every marriage book was written from the standpoint at that time. There are better ones out there now. But every marriage book was written at that time by what some guy found out about his own relationship with his wife. And now he thinks everybody's supposed to do the same thing that he did. Well, not every woman is his wife. So doing everything that he did is not going to work for the other guys who's married to somebody else. Women just have this natural thing that's God-given. God took it out of, Abra- uh, out of Adam's side and gave it to her. It's gone. <laughs> I get a good one every now and then, don't I? And so there's this innate 
way that God has made the woman is different from the man. Why? To give her a better opportunity and a better understanding of responding to the provision of her husband. That's what it's there for, folks. That's what it's there for. That response is not to try to fix him. If you have to conclude that he's an idiot, but you're still supposed to submit to him. Now, some idiots are easier to submit to than other idiots. I get that. But it doesn't change what the Bible says to do. And again, Paul's not trying to, he's not coming from a standpoint where he's trying to get out of anything. He's not trying to have some kind of halfway relationship with God. He's saying this is the, marriage is the closest relationship example that there is to us in our relationship with God. He wants to submit. He wants to be completely submissive to everything God wants for him because he knows God's out for his good. And that'd be great if all husbands were just like God in that respect. They're not, and I get that. So he says, husbands, love your wives. What did I skip verse 24? I think I did. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Would, the, would you be expected to submit to something if God would tell you something contrary to his word? Would you be expected to submit to that? Well, first of all, it's impossible for God to tell you something contrary to his word, but his word is the key. Therefore, if a husband was to demand something of the wife that is contrary to the word, she would not be responsible to obey that. She would be responsible to still maintain an attitude of submission. Well, what would an attitude of submission look like in that case? Pray for him. Pray for him. Assume the best. Assume that he's not trying to disobey God, but that his eyes are shielded from the truth. And so pray that those blinders would be lifted. Can you see what it's saying? But the attitude has, is intended to be maintained throughout. Now, granted, there comes a point where you can't. I get that. If a situation is leading to divorce and there's sin involved and so forth, I understand that there comes a point where you, it just becomes unreasonable, if not impossible, to maintain an attitude of submission. I get that. But that's a, a rarity, folks. That shouldn't be the majority of the cases, should it? So then he says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, the marriage books will tell you this, at least the marriage books they used to read, will tell you this. Oh, the husband's supposed to give everything to his wife and make his wife just a living heaven on earth. Well, that's fine as long as we're using the same guideline of the word of God. For example, does Jesus give you everything you want? If so... Please tell me how you're praying. <laughs> now, when Jesus gave himself for the church, he gave himself for the good of the church. He didn't give himself for the enjoyment of the church. He didn't give himself so the church would have comfort and, and, and you know, um, a bonbon day every, every day of their lives. He had a mission, and that mission was to provide himself a sacrifice for the well-being of the church. Well, husbands, in the same respect, should have a mission where their marriages are concerned. And that mission would certainly include making things as pleasant and pleasurable for the wife as possible. But for example, let's just use, and I'm, I, nobody has talked to me this week. This is not revealing anybody's secrets. I'm picking one out of the air, okay? 
Let's say the woman wants to spend some money on something when the man, when the husband and the wife have decided that they were going to save their money for something beneficial, a home, a house, whatever. But the wife decides, oh, let's blow some money on a vacation. What should he do? Well, there's no right or wrong answer here. But if he did say, no, 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 we agreed. The house is a, nece- is a necessary thing for us. I'm not going to let you blow the money. We're not, even though it would be fun for us both, we're not going to do that. We're going to keep to our original agreement and save the money for the house. What would he be doing? He's giving himself for his wife. Now, if the wife sulks, well, he never takes me anywhere. <laughs> what's happening? He's done what's right. Now, would it be okay for him to say, well, I know we agree, but okay, let's go blow some money. Yeah, if they both agree, that's fine. But what I'm trying to get across to you folks is that obedience and action in and of itself is not the telltale sign. It's all about attitude. Jesus gave himself for the church for the church's benefit, not for the church's enjoyment, not for every moment to be a a high-heeled time. He gave himself for the benefit of the church. In the same way, the husband is to give himself for the benefit of the marriage, the wife's benefit. Because as the marriage increases and improves and grows, so the wife will increase her pleasure and enjoyment as well. I heard somebody say this one time, and I think it's real good. Every husband and wife should look at their marriage as a separate thing. We've got three things. We've got you, we've got me, and we've got this thing called marriage. And marriage is like, and I tell this to premarital, in premarital counseling, marriage is like a blank canvas. Two people are going to paint a picture together. They can paint it any way that they want to. There's no right or wrong way to do it. They can paint anything they want to. They better get together ahead of time and figure out what the picture is going to look like rather than just start throwing paint on the wall or on the picture, canvas. You've got to come up with a plan. What, does, what do we want this thing to look like? Well, in, in this respect, in the example of Jesus and the church, God knew what he wanted the church to look like. The church had no clue. It's different in a marriage because men and women are working together. So husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but it should be holy and without blemish. Now, these are things that, that Paul is telling about. Here's what, this was God's plan for the church. This is what the church should look like. What should it look like? It should look like it's clean, without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle. It should look purified by the word. Now, some people take this and say, husbands, we need to purify our wives by the word of God. You ever tried that? That doesn't work. I find my wife doing something wrong and saying, Honey, you know, the Bible says this. Oh, that goes over big. Because <laughs> you can't purify somebody else with the word. This is talking about God's plan for the church, not God's plan for marriage. Jesus gave himself for the church. He fulfilled his mission that he might present the church to himself. Without spot or wrinkle. Cleansed by the word of God. That's not the work of the husband to the wife. That's not the work at all of the husband and the wife. That's the work of the Holy Ghost. And you husbands and wives know how great it is when we try to take the place of the Holy Ghost for our spouse. Gee, that's just wonderful. 
Nothing I enjoy better than my wife telling me what she thinks God wants me to do. And the same thing's true in reverse. So, verse 28, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. In other words, in the same way that God had a mission to give himself for the benefit of the church, husbands should have that in mind where their wives are concerned. So ought wives, or I'm sorry, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. Now, what does that mean? Again, Paul's not trying to fix a problem, and he's certainly not trying to create a problem. He's taking a big picture view of the world and what the church should look like in the world. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, even as the Lord does the church. In other words, he's saying the way to love your wife is the same way that you would love yourself. Put your wife on at least an even par, if not in a a greater place of importance, as what you would do for yourself. If I'm going to get an In-N-Out burger, I'll make sure my wife has one too. If I come home with a bag of In-N-Out burgers and one of them isn't hers, man, I'm in trouble. Now, that's a silly example, but you understand the point. That's all he's saying. He's saying wives ought to be put in a place of on equal par with their husbands. Now, think about the world that Paul is writing this to. Wives don't have equal rights. Women don't have equal rights. Husbands, especially in Ephesus, and the archaeological finds and, and historical uh, discoveries that have been made there, man, sex within marriage was about the only thing that you didn't find evidence of. But there's every other kind of sexual activity and perversion and stuff going on out there. So what does Paul do? He's bringing it back in the context which God intended for it to be. So he says, husbands, treat your wives as your equal. That's all he's saying. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Now notice verse 31. Verse 31 is, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Now what is this? This is quoting Adam in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 when God reveals Eve to him. For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Two interesting thoughts here. The first I'll make mention of, it's kind of a side thought. But one of the first things that you need to realize here is that Adam, the only created being on the earth, having just had Eve revealed to him, recognizes the importance for in-laws to stay out of the business of married couples, even for there was such a thing as in-laws. That's supernatural, folks. The second thing you need to realize is that this verse specifically, and remember, I said this earlier in the service, but remember, Paul starts off, chapter 5 starts off where Paul says, be followers or imitators, mimics of God in the way that he forgives us, forgive other people. Verse 2, and walk in love, walk in love. Then he starts in verse 3, and avoid fornication in the sexual sin of the world. Well, how are we going to avoid fornication in the sexual sin of the world? By the marriage relationship regarding sex marriage or sex was created for marriage only that's the way god made it sex was created for marriage only and this marriage relationship the sexual relationship in the marriage is intended designed by god to make 
the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, one in flesh. Now, when the Bible says one flesh, it does not literally mean they become the same body. It certainly doesn't mean they become one in spirit. Because you stand before God individually, not together with your wife. So spiritually, you're not joined together. But in flesh, you are joined together through the marriage union. It's a specific relationship that's designed to go back to what Paul started talking about, to avoid the sexual sin of the world. For this cause... For this cause, for this cause, shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, here where he's talking about mystery, he's he's not talking about something unknown. It's a dynamic mystery, not an unknown mystery. And here's what it means. Just as sex was created for marriage only, Sexual relationships were created to be engaged in within the marriage confines and the marriage context only. And much harm has been brought about when you take it out of those confines and outside those boundaries. Everybody knows about situations in their own lives or with their own loved ones or whatever that uh, reveal that. But just in the same way that sex is designed for to be within marriage only, there are certain things that are, that are uh, a part of our relationship with God. And remember, the marriage relationship is a type, an example of our relationship with the Lord. There are certain things that belong only to believers. For example, praise to God, praying in the Spirit. Those things belong only to believers, and those are things that will cause your marriage, your uh, relationship with God to be enhanced and energized. And this is the mystery Paul's talking about. He's saying there are things that belong only to believers, just like, the, just like sex belongs only to married couples. This is the mystery. This is the dynamic that God intended, that God created. Nevertheless, he goes on to say, and finishes the chapter. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. The word reverence is another word relating to attitude. It means honor, respect, and admire. Now notice there's a lot more information given to the wives than there is to the husbands. Now you get husbands and wives that are having problems in marriage counseling or whatever, and they'll start using these scriptures against each other. Well, the Bible tells you to submit. Well, the Bible tells you to love me like Jesus loved the church. A lot of times you have to just make sure that everybody's hands are empty before you start trying to talk to people. But folks, there there are a couple of times. Paul gives us two. Peter gives us one. There are several times in the Bible where instruction is given to husbands and wives concerning the marriage and or sexual relationship in the marriage. And every time it starts off with the wives. Every time. Why is that? Because that rib is gone from Adam. Every time he gives the wife the responsibility. Now, does that mean the husband doesn't have responsibilities? No, doesn't mean that at all. It means that the marriage relationship is either going to be successful or unsuccessful based on the wife's response to the husband. Now, are there exceptions? Sure. 
You can have a wife that has a submissive attitude. She's trying to submit to her husband, and the husband's either gambling the money away or cheating with other women or stuff like that. And the Bible makes no provision for what to do in those situations because those are things that shouldn't be named among the church. So certainly there are exceptions. But by and large, and, and unfortunately, everybody wants to deal with the exceptions. Everybody wants to deal with the least uh, common and the most extreme things. Well, what if my husband tells me this? Well, has he told you that? Well, no. Well, then who cares? Why don't we deal with where you live? But so many times people get caught up in the extremes. Are there extremes? Are there rarities? Yeah, there are. Are there situations that the Bible specifically doesn't say what to do about? Yeah, there are. But for the most part, but for the vast majority of cases, vast majority of cases, the Bible talks about the success for the failure of the marriage relationship dependence first, not solely, but first on the wife's response to her husband. Wives, hate to tell you this, but you have a much greater responsibility than the husbands do. Why? Because his job is to provide. His job is to provide. Whether he's good at it or not is another issue. His job is to provide for you. His job is to be himself. And that you, through your response, well, let me say it this way. I mentioned before over in 1 Peter chapter 3, the Bible says that that wives that are married to ungodly husbands can win them by their godly lifestyle and attitude. Well, if if an unsaved person is affected by a godly attitude and a godly lifestyle of his wife, what do you think somebody is going to, what do you think the effect would be on somebody, a man, a husband, that is saved and has the opportunity to hear from the Spirit of God from within? It's going to have a greater impact on him. Because God's already living on the inside of him. He may not be living it, may not be walking in it, but God's already there. So if the godly lifestyle and attitude of a wife, can reach an unsaved man for Jesus. Can't you see how it could have a greater impact on a saved husband, even if he's not living right? Well, sure, certainly. And unfortunately, we've got a lot of relationships, a lot of marriage relationships that mirror people's relationships with Jesus. Some people have a vibrant relationship with Jesus. They're talking to him every day. He's leading them by the Spirit of God every day. They're fellowshipping with him in the Word every day. And other people that Jesus paid just the same price for are in the door, so to speak. They know when they die they're going to heaven, but there's no evidence whatsoever of the life of God with them or on them. What makes the difference? Their response. God's the same in both situations. It's our response that makes the difference. And the Bible uses that as the greatest example that we have here on the earth for the relationship that we have with him. Now remember, what is this all about? What does it go back to? Paul's not trying to fix a problem. He's certainly not trying to start any. He's saying this is how a spirit-filled life should look in the home. It should be seen in the relationship between the husband and the wife. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the instruction that you give us and the equipment that you give us to live a spirit-filled life. What a privilege it is, Father, to be filled with the Holy Ghost and know that we can speak with tongues by the Spirit's, at the Spirit's utterance at any moment in time. But what a greater thing to have the life of God seen and known in our relationships 
in our homes where our children can see the love of God manifest and in operation, where the world can see the success of a marriage to contrast with what they see around them elsewhere. Thank you, Father, for the privilege to walk in the Word, to walk in the Spirit of God. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us here this close to a fine Christmas week. Come on back and be with us tonight if you can for healing school and prayer school. If I don't see you before then, Merry Christmas. Oh, and don't forget to Christmas Eve services Thursday night too. Be with us for that if you can. God bless you.